Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Acts. The New Testament book of Acts, you'll find that on page 914 of your church Bibles. And we're in a teaching series over the book of Acts here at the church. And I want to read Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And then I'll jump to Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 60. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Verse 51, Stephen said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as was delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is God's word. Sam Walker is an editor for the Wall Street Journal, and he has a new book out called The Captain Class. The Captain Class. And it's a book that explores what it is that makes the world's greatest sports teams so great. Sam Walker surveys 
football and soccer and basketball, volleyball, baseball, and he found a common denominator in virtually every team dynasty. The team captain. The team captain. But here's what may surprise you. More often than not, the team captains were not the celebrities. Instead, they were the ones who took care of the tough, difficult, unglamorous tasks. They did the grunt work that nobody else would do. For example, he writes that in 1962, when Brazil won its second consecutive World Cup, the team's unquestioned star was Pele, perhaps the greatest soccer player of all time. The prevailing view was that Pele's brilliance expressed by the 77 goals he scored, well, that was the team's driving force. But Pele was never made captain, and nor did he lobby for the job. The team's primary leader was the tough and humble defender named Bellini, who in his nine-year stint with Brazil never scored a goal. But Bellini was a workhorse. He was not a star. While Pele attended to the pressures of celebrity, Bellini took care of the daily, hourly, grinding work of unifying the team. He cleaned up their mistakes with his fearless defense, often leaving the field bruised and bloodied and calmly urged his team forward when their confidence sagged. Sam Walker wrote, The captains on my list rarely had exceptional talents. Then he wrote this, the leader's job wasn't to dazzle on the field, but to labor in the shadows, to carry the water for the team, to lead from the back, the captain class. Well, I mention all this because as I look through the life of this servant leader, Stephen, in the book of Acts, well, we see one of the most Christ-like figures but we also see someone who was not an apostle. He was not a celebrity. He took care of the unglamorous tasks, the behind-the-scenes, quietly serving the church's most vulnerable members, the widows. And at the same time, when called, he did not cease from confronting those who would oppose the gospel. He was relentless, and he was a force that propelled Christianity beyond Jerusalem on into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we're going to look at his life today in this snapshot that Luke gives us in, verses, uh, in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And what I want us to see as we consider his life is that Stephen exemplified that portion of the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed a little while ago. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We talk about being a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ, and we wonder, okay, that's, that's a great, you know, tagline, but what does that actually mean? What does that look like? Well, the verses that we're going to consider this morning actually show us what someone looks like when they pursue a kingdom agenda, when they pursue Christ with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their mind and all of their strength. Stephen's life was a kingdom life. 
when we talk about kingdom perspective and fearlessly sharing our faith. We're talking about Stephen, someone who thoroughly delighted in the desires of Christ, someone who spoke fearlessly for Christ when the time came to do so, someone who saw the face of Christ even in the fangs of death, and someone who expresses forgiving, forbearing love just like Christ. Well, let's get into his life as we consider these verses. Now, earlier in Acts chapter 6, we see that Stephen was one of seven chosen in Acts 6 to care for the church's widows. And he made sure that they were prayed over and uh, that, they had their, that they had their physical needs met. And that's most of what he did. That was the ministry to which he was called. He met needs with love. Verse 8 tells us Stephen was full of grace and power. Full of grace and power. I wonder if there's a lesson just there in that phrase. Full of grace and power. Because some people are all grace and no power. That is, we don't want to offend anybody. We keep the peace at the expense of truth. On the other hand, there are those who are all power and no grace. They're obnoxious. They're rude. They talk over people. They find enjoyment in doing so. You know anybody like that? Are you like that? Well... Stephen possessed the spirit-given ability to be full of grace and full of power. He was courteous, yet immovable. He was humble, yet confident. He was fearlessly well-spoken, yet absent any pride. And those qualities don't come by just doing more and trying harder. Instead, they come from a life submitted and surrendered to the Holy Spirit to the wisdom and power of Jesus' spirit. Now, when you read the Bible, and sometimes you notice in either chapters or short paragraphs, a phrase appears, and then the identical phrase shows up a little later on. And that is something to take note of because it's like a bracket describing something or someone. And in Stephen's case, Acts chapter 6 verse 8, look at that verse, says that Stephen was full of grace and full of power. Uh, in fact, if you even go before, you'll see Stephen's life described as someone who was full of the Holy Spirit. That's the first phrase that we see about Stephen in Acts 6, 5. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And then at the conclusion of this section on his life in Acts seven fifty five, also we read, he's full of the Holy Spirit. From beginning to end, this man of God was full of God's Holy Spirit. But what does that mean, to be full of the Holy Spirit? That's a phrase we hear in church a lot. That's a churchy phrase. But what does that mean? Full of the Holy Spirit means that you want what the Spirit wants. That's what that means. That you desire what the Spirit desires. And that you are influenced and moved and shaped by those desires. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That's what it means to be full of the Spirit. And Stephen was a man who wanted God, who desired God. I'm thinking of that book uh, by the name, uh, uh, written by James Smith called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. It's an important book because in that book, Smith 
says about Jesus. In the Gospels, Jesus, Jesus doesn't ask people, what do you know? In fact, he doesn't even ask people in the Gospels, what do you believe? What does he ask? What do you want? What do you want? Because we are what we want. Our wants and our desires are at the core of our identity. You see, discipleship and growing in Christ is really more a matter of hungering and thirsting than it is knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his. To want what God wants. To desire what God desires. To hunger and thirst after God and to crave a world in, in which God is all in all. Which means this. Listen. You cannot think your way into holiness. You can't. Your, your knowledge of God flows from your longing for God. God, I want to know you. And I'm not dissing knowledge here. I'm just saying what the Apostle Paul uh, would later say. Uh, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. I want to know you, God, because I long for you. Uh, listen, the American retail industry has this cold. They realize this. Listen, the American shopping mall doesn't care what you think. They don't. They're deeply interested in what you love, though. And according to James Smith in this book, You Are What You Love, Victoria's secret is that she's after your heart. Because whatever fills your heart will fashion and influence your life. And Stephen was filled with the Spirit because he wanted what the Spirit wanted, which led him to speak up for Christ uh, in a dangerous place. Stephen attended a synagogue in Jerusalem called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Now, what's a synagogue? Well, a synagogue would be like a Hebrew version of a church campus. And synagogues emerged all over the Western world when the Hebrew people were dispersed from Jerusalem. And they would meet in pockets of the Greek and Roman world. And they would meet in gathering places. And they would build build gathering places, and they called them synagogues. And so there were many uh, surrounding Jerusalem, and Stephen happened to attend the synagogue of the freedmen, that is, former Jewish slaves. And he began sharing the gospel with the members in his own spiritual community, and, and he got pushed back. Members of the synagogue tried to refute Stephen, but Stephen was irrefutable. And in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 6, after failing to defeat Stephen in a fair debate, they, they, went, they went dirty. They resorted to a smear campaign. The verses say, they secretly instigated. They stirred up the people. They arrested him. They set up false witnesses. He's blasphemed against God and Moses. And he's speaking against the temple and the law. He said, this Jesus will destroy the temple and do away with our customs. I mean, they are out for blood. So they take Stephen before the ruling religious body in Israel, a group that Luke calls the council or the Sanhedrin. And, and there stands Stephen. 
in that small, deadly space surrounded by the same Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus, the same Sanhedrin that had arrested Peter and John and warned them not to speak in Jesus' name, the same Sanhedrin that took the apostles and tortured them for proclaiming Christ. This Sanhedrin, they've been witnessing thousands turn to Jesus. And this same Sanhedrin's lost a multitude of priests who have converted to Christianity. And these wolves have now cornered one of the sheep. But if you look at verse 15, Stephen doesn't look like a sheep, does he? And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I could be wrong, but I doubt that refers to a cherub-like effeminate face often seen in white northern European paintings. What the corrupt Sanhedrin saw was a holy glory from another world, a fierce and fearless brilliance from the face of a kingdom man. You know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of Joshua 5.14. In the Old Testament, just before the battle of Jericho, Joshua met an angel, and he asked the angel, are you for us or against us? You remember what the angel said? Neither. But I do command the army of the Lord. Stephen was a man who served before an audience of one. And that's what we hear in his speech in Acts chapter 7. The high priest in verse 1 of chapter 7 said, are these things so? Now, that's a yes-no question, isn't it? I mean, that's how a 21st century American would interpret that. I mean, and in a 21st century American courtroom, we would expect the defendant to either say yes or no. It's a yes-no question, guilty or not guilty. But, but... <laughs> That's not 21st century America. It's first century Israel. And Stephen answers, but not the way we would. You see, when you ask someone from first century Hebrew background, when you ask someone a yes-no question, and you're from a first century Hebrew background, you don't answer with yes or no. You tell a story. And that's what we see here. Stephen tells a story, the story of God's history and his dealings with his people. Now, if you're new to faith or you're exploring Christianity and you want to know, well, what is the Old Testament about anyway? Well, you can read from Genesis to Malachi and figure it out, or you can read Acts chapter 7. Really, because Acts chapter 7 is a concise summary of Israel's history. And Stephen says that Israel's history has two points. Two-point history. Point number one, God's patient grace. God's patient grace. That's point number one. Point number two is this. Israel's misplaced trust. Israel's misplaced trust. God's patient grace, Israel's misplaced trust. That's the story of God's dealings with his people. 
Now we see God's patient grace as Stephen tells us the story of Joseph, who in the book of Genesis was rejected by his own brothers. Joseph's brothers would have killed him, but instead they sold him off to Egyptian slavery. They lied to Jacob, the dad, about what had happened to the favored son. But God, through Joseph, exercised patient grace. God took Joseph from the pit of slavery and exalted him to the pinnacle to being prime minister over the country of Egypt. And once in power, Joseph rescued his family. Joseph saved the very ones who had rejected him. That's patient grace. And then Stephen moves on to Moses in verses 20 to 44. Moses is the story of yet another messenger sent by God, but rejected by his own people. Now, we often know, yeah, of course, Pharaoh rejected Moses. Yeah, well, but the first to reject Moses wasn't Pharaoh, but the Hebrew people. Acts chapter 7, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. God's patient grace against those who keep rejecting his messengers. Now again, if you're exploring Christianity or you're new to the faith, understand what Stephen is saying about God, the God we worship here. And it's this. God never takes delight in punishing people, ever. God never wakes up in the morning and says, well, who can I send to hell today? He doesn't do that. You know, in American business, we read on personnel and management Hire slow, fire fast. Hire slow, fire fast. Well, you know, that may be what you need to do. I get that. But that's not how God operates. He's patient. He's long-suffering. And his heart aches when people made in his own image reject him. You see, the God of the Bible doesn't give up on us because we've disobeyed once or twice or 10 times or 70 times or 7 times 70. If you can still repent, he's still pursuing you. So what are you waiting for? Our goal as a church is not to swell the ranks of our membership uh, uh, book. Our goal is to convince you that your best life is one bowed to the only true king. God's patient grace. He's waiting. He's waiting. Well, what Stephen said on this point really isn't anything new. Peter and John had said this back in Acts chapter 2 and 3. And but Stephen moves from, from preaching to meddling as he gets to the second point. He moves from God's patient grace to Israel's misplaced trust. Stephen accuses the Sanhedrin of putting their trust in a handmade temple instead of the one above the temple, the one who's over the temple, the one who transcends the temple. You see, the Sanhedrin treated a temple like it was a good luck charm. The, the, the 
Sanhedrin treated the temple like, you know, its very existence was a sign of God's favor. Now, we think, well, that's just, you know, that's just people in the first century. Not necessarily. And it's silly. It's silly to even think that one's spiritual closeness with God would just, you know, be about a physical place. Well, I mentioned our guest services ministry a little while ago. But can you imagine how silly it would sound if you were visiting here at Windsor Road and you wanted to come during the week, check the place out, and you met one of our staff, and I came out and met you out on the parking lot, and you open your car door, and you get out, and I greet you, and then I, I say, look at this parking lot. Isn't this parking lot an example of God's favor upon our lives? Uh, huh. And then you go into the foyer and say, look at this foyer. Look at our children's area. Isn't this children's area just, a, 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 just, a, just, just proof positive of God's exclusive love for us? You go, huh? And then I take you to the holy of holy places on our church campus where the coffee's made. And I, write, I, I tie a rope around your ankle in case you go in and touch something and you fall down dead and we have to pull you out, you know. And we say, this is God's favorable. He said, that's, well, I've seen enough. Bye, you know. But that's, that's what's going on here with the Sanhedrin. They are, they're assuming the physical temple to be a sign of, you know, just God's automatic favor upon them. But their lives are still corrupt. And their hearts are still bent. And you may be looking at these verses and you're going, Stephen, I mean, he's, he's really scolding, you know, he's really scolding these, 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 these religious leaders. And, and that's what you need to understand. Stephen's not, he's not talking to the Romans. He's not talking to the Greeks. He's not talking to the barbarians. What we're reading here is a closed door family conversation uh, between a team captain who's confronting the team owners or those who think they're the team owners, and he's calling them toward repentance. And he's saying, you have put your trust. The, the whole purpose of this facility, the whole purpose was, uh, was to be a meeting place with God, not not like a, a, a good luck charm, and you're blaspheming and minimizing and demeaning the God of heaven and earth when you think that is because he's not a prisoner in his temple. And that's why Stephen talks to us about Abraham and tells us how the God of glory appeared to Abraham and went to Abraham where Abraham was. God appeared, God moved, God gave, God was with him, God granted, God sent, God raised up. And all throughout the history of Israel, God is moving and taking a, uh, initiative and walking with his people from Ur to Haran, from Haran to Canaan, from Canaan to Egypt, from Egypt back to Canaan. And all of this God is doing apart from the temple. God doesn't need a temple to be God. Yet the Most High, verse 48, 
does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? The point is that our God is a pilgrim God, and he is the God on the move, the living, marching, walking God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, that's not good enough for you. And like Israel of old who said to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. That's what you've done with this place. The most damaging accusation against the Sanhedrin was when Stephen says in verse 41, and they made a calf and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their hands. Do you hear that? Stephen tells them that they've turned the temple of God. And God wanted his people to build a temple, but not for what they were using it for. You've changed, you've, you've twisted and perverted this gift into a golden calf. Does such a thing still happen today? Oh, let me count the ways. If your golden calf is your spouse, you're going to be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. Their problems will overwhelm you, and you will look to them to be your personal Messiah. If your golden calf are your children, you're going to try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If your golden calf is your career... You will be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. You'll never feel like you have enough, and you're going to be tempted to do unethical things, and your life will explode. If your golden calf is about some pleasure or gratification or comfort, you're going to find yourself addicted to something, and then you're going to be chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If your golden calf is about relationship approval, then you're going to be hypersensitive to criticism and thus lose friends, or you're going to be afraid to confront others and therefore be a useless friend. If your golden calf is some noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you'll be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you have no purpose. And then there's American politics. If your golden calf is a political party, then you're going to look like every other American. And when your candidates win, you're going to think, oh, Christ has come. And when not, you're going to think, oh, the Antichrist has come. <laughs> and worse still, you'll come to church and you might even judge other of your brothers and sisters in Christ because you just assumed they voted for the candidate you, you, you despise. And yes, even pastors can worship golden idols, golden calves, you know, called the sermon. Yeah, yeah, instead of saying, Lord, 
you know, is what we've learned in your word shaping our hearts and filling us with your spirit and, 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 and fashioning our desires so that they can be like your desires? Is, is our teaching time and is our learning time, is it, is it glorifying Christ or has it become the golden calf of how did I do? You see, some preachers love preaching about Jesus more than they love Jesus. And that's a golden calf. Do you understand now why the Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 21, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Idols minimize God. Idols put God in a box. Idols defame God. Idols blaspheme God. No wonder John Calvin once said that the human heart is an idol factory. And Stephen is trying to woo them back to God. Even his harsh words are a form of God's severe mercy. But they will have none of it. And thus, verse 51, Stephen says, you stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people. Now, we read that in the Bible and we think, what does that mean? It means this. Let's say you have a horse and you're riding it and you pull the reins to the right and you know, the horse's neck goes to the right and then moves to the right. But not a stiff-necked horse. Because a stiff-necked horse will not be turned. And thus, a stiff-necked horse will not take direction. And Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, your necks are steel. And your heart and ears are uncircumcised. That is, your, your spiritual hearing is calloused over layer after layer of skin that will not be removed. And you're not listening to God. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That is to say, you do not do what the Spirit wants. You want what you want. And you say you want to respect the temple, but the true temple of God, Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, came to you as God has been doing over and over and over again, but you don't get it and you don't want to get it. You see, you see, he did not answer their yes, no question because for Stephen to answer their yes, no question would be to accept the premise of the question. And Stephen rejects the premise of the question. You see, had he answered the way they wanted, he would be accepting the premise that they're the supreme authority and he's the defendant and they're going to judge him. But Stephen doesn't see it that way. He's not the defendant. He's the prosecuting attorney. They are the defendants. And they're not the judge. King Jesus is the judge. And Jesus, prosecuting attorney, has brought a prophetic lawsuit against those who crucified Christ. Stephen is the special prosecutor of this lawsuit. You're just like your fathers who killed the prophets, and now you've betrayed and murdered the one about whom they prophesied. The righteous, well, you claim to possess the law, but you don't keep it. And at that point, brothers and sisters, suddenly Stephen saw a reality greater and more wonderful than the one he was in. Full of the Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, the very heaven that Jesus stepped into in Acts 1 when he ascended to his throne. Stephen saw in verse 56... And he said, Behold, 
I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And I think when he said that, he knew it was over. But I don't, I don't think it mattered because, because his very eyes saw a greater reality than the one he was in. Oh, church family, the life to come is no dreary, gloomy, Greek place of bleak misery. Listen to me, listen to me. One blade of grass in the new heavens and the new earth is more glorious than all of creation here. And when your children ask you, well, mom and dad, what are we going to do in heaven? Right? Oh, if you say we're going to sit on clouds and strum the harp, you, you, you just, you're just killing me. I love the harp, okay? I love the harp, all right? Well, what do we tell them? Here's what you tell them. Listen, I believe this. We're going to do in heaven what we're, gonna, what we're doing now, worshiping and serving and being together and playing and growing together. Except there will be no sin. There'll be no evil. There'll be no Satan. There'll be no crying. There'll be no tears. Church family, the problem with earth is not that it's physical. The problem is sin. And Jesus stands as the victor over sin and death. And he stands as Stephen's advocate before the Father. That's why he's standing. That's my man. The very moment Stephen was publicly acknowledging the reality of Christ to the Sanhedrin, the true king, Christ himself, was publicly acknowledging Stephen before the Father. And they couldn't handle it. They dragged him outside the city. This dignified council of religious men became a, a, a lynch mob. They pummeled and pounded Stephen with stones. And Luke, remember, is writing these words to Theophilus. Theophilus. Luke is saying, how can I communicate to you that even though you're a noble person of rank and status, most excellent Theophilus, how can I get across the reality that, that although you are a part of the Roman Empire, a Roman citizen, oh, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a king who will, by his power, transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. I want your heart flooded with assurance that Jesus is alive and Jesus is on the move and your life matters. And so your life is to be like Stephen's life because Stephen's life was like Christ's life. Like Christ, Stephen was full of the Spirit. Like Christ, Stephen performed signs and wonders. Like Christ, Stephen spoke fearlessly. And like Christ, Stephen cried unto death, Oh, Lord, receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against them. And even in this horrible, violent death of stoning. Luke depicts 
Stephen's death as falling asleep. Because when you're in Christ, even death becomes like sleep. And when you're in Christ, when you're in Christ, death can't steal your fear. When you're in Christ, death can't steal your love, can't steal your love for your enemies, can't steal your hope, can't steal your joy, can't steal your grace or your power. Death cannot keep the believer from Jesus who stands as our advocate and host. In Christ, death becomes your servant. Christ takes death and grabs death and puts death in a full Nelson and works death and forces death to serve you. Death opens its mouth to reveal to you its fangs, but Jesus transforms that open mouth into an open window by which you see glory like you've never seen before. And it's not just a window. It is a doorway to life that is truly life, I'm telling you. And his death catalyzed God's people beyond Jerusalem because it's right after this, right after this, that a major persecution, the church started being treated like Stephen was, and yet the gospel kept growing beyond Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God be praised. This is a long sermon. <laughs> Stevens. <laughs> what, what, what were you thinking? Never mind. Say, <laughs> so who would who could remember all of this? Ah. Serious question. I'll tell you who remembered this. Saul. Saul. Verse 58 says that the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That was the Saul that would later become Paul. And Luke who wrote Acts, was Paul's personal physician and a part of his missionary team. And I believe that it was when it came time to write this book, Paul said, well, I'll tell you what happened because I was there. And church family, I want you to know, see, <laughs> you think, well, my life is beyond repair. No. Now, the very, the very one who was responsible for the death of the speaker, God changed. Do not hold the sin against him. And he won't hold the sin against you, whatever your sin is. In fact, the best is yet to come. So be faithful and finish strong in the Lord. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him.